Psalm 119, starting at verse 129, we'll be reading the Peh and Tzadi acrostic sections. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow down my eye, from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in here to verses 137 through 144. Father, it's our desire to hear from you this morning. I ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see, cause our ears to hear, illumine our minds to understand your word. And may we then live as you've called us to live, being a witness to Jesus all of our days, holding fast to your word of life. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us here are familiar with the words, the hymn writer. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That stanza one. The hymn writer ends in stanza four by speaking about what's yet to come. When he shall come with trumpet sound. It's a reference to what? The Lord's return, right? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. What's that do for us? Faultless. Faultless to stand before the throne. You know, this is not only a favorite hymn of mine, but I believe it's a song that's packed with some theological underpinnings that are crucial for everyone here to understand. What is your hope built on this morning? The hymn writer said, his hope is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back to earth one day? Do you know his purpose in coming a second time? The first time he came to save his people from their sins. The second time the Bible says he's coming to judge the world. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness. That's the standard. Righteousness. Do you recognize your need to be dressed in his righteousness alone? 
Some of us perhaps consider being dressed in his righteousness as nothing more than just security for the future. And while, yes, it is that, there's, there's a, a, a standard of security there that's going to be present, having been dressed in his righteousness against the wrath of God to come. But his righteousness, friends, is also intended to make a difference in your current day-to-day living. See, his righteousness is not simply some assurance for what's yet to come, but it's the means of affecting all of your relationships Sunday through Saturday. See, his righteousness offers you his perfect peace. It offers you a 24-7 access to the throne. And it offers you the hope of eternal glory with Christ himself. Friends, I didn't make that up. You can read about it in in Romans chapter 5. The first few verses in Romans 5, it's, it's there. Having been justified with Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hymn writer assumes that Jesus himself is righteous. His righteousness is a perfect righteousness. You see, because this one that we speak of, Jesus, is fully God. He, he came to declare God, and John 1.18 says... So not only is Jesus righteous, but his Father is righteous as well. And the psalmist here in 137 through 144, he seems to be caught up in the Lord's righteousness. It's the theme for Tzade, which is the 18th stanza of Psalm 119. We see in verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord. In 138, your testimonies are righteous. In 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And 144, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Central to the text is a declaration that the Lord is righteous and his word is righteous. Foundational truths about God and his word provide the anchor for his soul. Friends, those same things ought to provide an anchor for our souls today. His Presence, who he is, and his word, what's he, what he's given to us. And you know, even in the midst of, of challenges that come our way and trials that inevitably come, it's what we know about the Lord and his word that serves as our steadying influence and our compass for running this race of faith that he's marked out for us. You see, knowing God and his word, knowing his truths available in the scriptures, This is valuable for the soul in the midst of a perverse generation that we live in, friends. This world that's filled with ungodliness, unrighteousness. When trials come, it makes all the difference to know the Lord and to have his word in you. Biblical truth gives you what the world cannot offer. Biblical truth gives you what the world cannot offer. Biblical truth offers you hope. For this life and the life that's yet to come. Biblical truth provides meaning to your life where the world is scratching its head, dazed a bit, confused, apathetic about what this life means and where it's headed. Things around you might seem to be crumbling and falling apart, but you can always return to the biblical truth. You can always count on God and His Word. Always. That's good news this morning. You see, and this is the picture that's drawn for us here in Tzare, in this particular stanza of Psalm 119. In fact, the big idea this morning has in mind biblical truth. 
the big picture of biblical truth. Biblical truth explains your challenges that you face in your life. It guides your feelings that are going to accompany those challenges. And it, it, it fuels your petitions as you continue running God's course through the finish line. You see, the psalmist has his heart set on God and his word. And as we've been reading in this series, line by line, keeps speaking of God's words, his testimonies, his precepts, his judgments, his commandments. And as you continue to study Psalm 119, you notice the references to opposition in life. These trials and challenges and setbacks litter his path. And yet he keeps his eyes on God. He's reminded of God's perfect word and he's continuing on in his journey. And you know, I don't know about you when you come across it in the text, but I'm especially grateful that he's given to us and recorded for us as the Spirit has moved him to do so. He's recorded these challenges and trials. You see, because it shows a man, much like myself, much like you all, shows that running the Lord's course is truly littered with obstacles. It would be unrealistic, wouldn't it, to be able to read Psalm 119 and just read simply about a man whose life just seems to be perfect? Because many of us in here, if not all of us, have a feeling that day by day it's hard, this life is hard, and we would lose touch with what he's saying. But we have instances throughout Psalm 119 of these challenges, these trials that come. You see, because all, all of us encounter trials of various kinds. And I want you to see that a righteous man is not a man free from sin in this life. He is, however, a man who has dealt with his sin, who's currently dealing with his sin, and who longs for the day when this receptacle of sin is no more. He looks forward to the end of his salvation, the glorification of his soul. Righteous men and women, they desire the things of God in their lives. And I think we can agree as we read through Psalm 119, I'm hoping now six weeks into this study, we've gotten a little bit of a flavor and feel for the psalmist. I think for many of us, we would agree that This is a righteous man who is penning these words moved by the Spirit. But what is it for man to be righteous? And is there a difference between man's righteousness and the righteousness that's credited to the Lord in the Scriptures? For instance, when you say that so-and-so is righteous, what do you really mean? Well, some of us might mean that he's a good person. Some of us, it might mean he attends church regularly. Some of us, it might mean um, he doesn't do certain things. Doesn't smoke, doesn't cheat, doesn't steal. Some of us, it might mean he attends a Bible study regularly throughout the week. See, to be righteous is to be right with God. So the question comes, how is it possible for one to become right with God? Who declares that one is righteous? Romans 8.33 says, God is the one who justifies As we're going to see, justification and righteousness um, fit and connect together in the scriptures. Really, the idea and the understanding of the biblical doctrine of justification says this by definition. uh, Justification is this judicial act by which God declares righteous those who believe in Jesus Christ. God declares 
those who are righteous, who believe in Jesus Christ. But how is it that his righteousness can be my righteousness? How does that actually work? Well, there's another doctrine in the scripture. It's the doctrine of imputation. And and just briefly, it says this, the doctrine of imputation. It's crediting something to someone's account. And God does this work. God credits something. And there's both a negative and a positive example of this in the scripture. We see the negative seen early on in Genesis in the life of Adam through one man. Sin entered the world and death came through sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Adam was our representative. And so what was credited to our account was sin through Adam, through that one man. You can read about this, by the way, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Okay? You can read about Adam and the imputation of his sin to our account. You can also read in that same passage of Scripture about this one man, Jesus. Here's the positive example of imputation. Well, by his one act of obedience, right? This one man made many righteous. So we have both examples, the positive and the negative, when we think about this imputation. So righteousness, it sits within the context of justification. And justification does two things. It pardons our sins, which is good news. Pardons our sins. If you are justified here today, your sins have been pardoned. They've been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. But justification also accepts us. Doesn't just pardon our sins. Doesn't just take us back to square one. It also accepts us as righteous. Accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness which has been imputed to us by Christ, through Christ, that is. And it's received. How's it received, this justification? It's received by faith, the Bible says. By faith. So the one who is righteous has entered into a relationship with the God of heaven. A relationship. Right standing with God entails a relationship. See, to say that one is righteous oftentimes conjures up these images or ideas. And, and we might think that one is righteous if he reads his Bible a lot or if he, if he just prays a, a lot of his day or he's diligent to preserve his purity. You know, in each one of those examples, the emphasis land squarely on the individual. What we deem righteous then can become a private matter. But in God's eyes, a righteous person is one who has committed his life to relationship. And the Bible is clear that our right standing is with God through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who is deemed the righteous. And there's a sense that the primary relationship gives birth to all other relationships in our life. Don't miss this. This is a very important aspect of our justification. We tend not to talk a whole lot about this when we speak of being righteous. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, he says there's a real sense that righteousness refers to a life of right relationships. A life of right relationships. In fact, I was reading the Proverbs this week as a preparation for this study because I knew one of the big themes was righteousness, and I knew the Proverbs had a lot to say about righteousness. This is not exhaustive. This is just but a few chapters in Proverbs. But listen to some of these Proverbs that speak about the righteous, and listen to the relational component involved in these verses. These these righteousness verses are not isolation passages that speak just of one person, but they seem to be connected 
There's a relational aspect when we talk about the righteous. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Proverbs 10, 11. 10, 16, the labor of the righteous leads to life. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Proverbs 10, 20. In 10, 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. In, in 10, 31, the, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Now, all these things, there's many of these that I've read that have to do with our mouth, have to do with our tongue, words that we speak, words that we speak to other people. There's a relational component here with the righteous. It says that the righteous should choose his friends carefully. The righteous man hates lying, Proverbs 13, 5. The righteous man hates lying. It's an abomination. He knows that lying lips are an abomination to God. He hates lying. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, Proverbs 15, 28. And the prayer of the righteous is heard in 1529. All of these have a relational component to them. And so out of a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ ought to flow right relationships with all others. Romans 6 speaks to this idea. Verse 13, Paul says here, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of what? Instruments of righteousness to God. Our members now are to be used as members, instruments of righteousness to God. We are to be living a life that is fully alive now to God. Because remember, in that same Romans 6 passage, we see that in Christ... We have died, we've been buried, and we've been raised to new life. We're intended to walk in newness of life now, being in Christ Jesus. And so the implications of right standing with God, of being righteous, affects our daily interactions with others, all of our earthly relationships. See, perhaps we haven't thought of justification in our righteous standing with God in those terms. But it's true. It does, and it's intended to affect all of our relationships. So when you understand how you became the righteousness of God, you relate to others in a new way. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how we became the righteousness of God in Christ. You were justified freely, Romans 3, by His grace through the blood of His redemption, which is speaking to the cross. And by means of faith, you've received His perfect righteousness charged to your account. In the sins of yours, God passed to his son's account. And this is amazing grace that's available to those who believe upon Jesus and receive him as the Lord of their life. Biblical truth is wonderful to take hold of. Hold fast to it, friends. Be anchored in it. And the psalmist here in 137 through 144, he exhibits a life that's grounded on biblical truth. Grounded on biblical truth. And so no matter what the challenge is in his life, he keeps coming back to what he knows to be true about God and his word. Look at the text. Verse 137 and 138. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. Now, here in the text, I want you to notice the references to righteous and righteousness. They all speak of God, don't they? All the references, they speak of God here in the text. Okay? To say that God is righteous, 
All of his works are righteous, right? Submit that his word is righteous. What does that mean? Well, a lot of times in the scriptures we see the word righteous and we see the word just. And they are oftentimes either just side by side or sometimes they're used interchangeably in certain contexts. And I believe here that the psalmist is pointing out the righteousness of the Lord. He is righteous. He is just. He is altogether good. God is infinitely righteous and equal both in himself and in his dealings with all of his creatures. I want you to think about that for just a moment. God never makes a wrong judgment. Ever. He never does. He always decides what's best to bring about his intended good. God always hates sin. Always. He's never okay with sin. Sin demands punishment. And God is just in dealing with sin. So the psalmist here is setting forth some biblical truths. As we go through, I want you to keep track of these biblical truths that he's setting forth. And notice the truths are manifested in who God is and some descriptors of God's word. Identifying who God is, describing his character, his nature, and his word. Those are the descriptors. He says, righteous are you, O Lord. You are perfect and good and you show no partiality. Upright are your judgments. He says, your testimonies are righteous. Your testimonies are very or exceedingly faithful. And so the psalmist here is pointing to God's word as being in this firm ground. He's pointing to the word as being fair in all of their dealings. He's pointing to the word as exceedingly trustworthy. And we read that and ask a question. Do you view God and his word this way, friends? Do you view God and his word in this very same way? And what are the implications of such biblical truth? What are the implications? The implications are we ought to rejoice as we read these words. You see, we live among a people whose gauge for truth seems to be constantly shifting. And it's based not on God's word, but on a sliding bar of one's own morality and ethics. You see, biblical truth abandonment, what it does is it opens the door for everyone to begin living and moving and operating by the procedure that we see at the end of Judges. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. That's the principle. You see, you push biblical truth aside and you begin to accept a different definition of marriage. You push biblical truth aside and you begin to accept a different definition of male and female. You push biblical truth aside and you begin to accept a different definition of the church and the purpose of the church. You begin to view your work differently. Your relationships suffer. Your purpose for taking up space here becomes self-centered instead of God-centered. You see biblical truths here in the text in 137 and 138. God is righteous. God's word is upright. God's word is righteous. God's word is very faithful. But I want you to notice too what he says in 138. He says, your testimonies which you have commanded. Spurgeon said, it's, it's not left to our choice whether we will accept his commands or not. They are issued by royal command and are not to be questioned. He's God. He's the potter. He's the one in charge. And he's commanded us. 
in this way. See, it's not a burdensome task for the righteous to follow a righteous king. The righteous are desirous to hear from God in his word. And you know, we can recall in the church, in the early days of the church, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it talks about how the church was devoted. Remember that? They were devoted. What were they devoted to? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to the prayers. Jim Cymbala in his book, Spirit Rising, speaking to this idea of the church in the early day and their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the word. He says that kind of dedication to the word is always a vital sign that the Holy Spirit is moving in the life of a person or a church. Believers, or what we would call in our context, the righteous, have a hunger to hear and read and study and in particular understand more about the word of God. He goes on and he says, spirit-controlled Christians don't usually have to force themselves to read the Bible. The Spirit gives them a holy appetite for it. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth, so he will always direct us toward God's truth. When a person has little interest in the word or when scripture seems dull and tedious to a church body, that is a sign that something is seriously out of sync. When we don't have respect for the word and reverence for its authority, and when we don't humble ourselves to hear what God has to say, we're on the wrong path. Friends, listen. When the king of kings commands his followers, is it open for discussion? No. See, he commands us. What's he commanding us to? He's commanding us to his word. Why then is there such a famine in the land concerning his word, even among those who are the church? There seems to be a famine. I believe Simbala puts his finger on part of the problem. We don't respect his word. We don't revere the authority of his word. And we don't humble ourselves to hear what God has to say. So please don't miss here in the text in 138. His testimonies have been commanded. It's not an option for the righteous follower of God. Now the first of three challenges comes in verse 139. There's going to be three challenges the psalmist is going to set forth in the text. Here in 139 is the first. He says, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Now zeal can have the idea of of passion... Uh, it can be rendered anger or indignation or even jealousy. Jealousy and based on the context, depending on where it's at in the scripture. Here I believe that the challenge that's facing the psalmist is ungodliness all around him. Ungodliness all around him. Notice where there's a challenge expressed in the text, there's a corresponding feeling expressed. We talked a little bit about that last week. Biblical truth explains the challenges and guides the feelings that accompany those challenges. See, when challenges come and feelings begin to respond to those challenges, it's significant, church, to have biblical truth as your foundation for operating. Biblical truth says that many have chosen to exchange the truth of God for the lie. Biblical truth says that a natural man cannot... Discern the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. He does not have the Spirit in him. 
Thus, it explains in part why he's acting the way that he is. Biblical truth says that the world will hate you because of Jesus. Go on and hold on to God's commands and see if your zeal doesn't get ramped up a bit. You see, the psalmist is looking around him and he's overwhelmed at the number of people who've forgotten God and his word. Isn't that so true today? We look around. We don't have to look very far. You can tell that people have essentially discarded God and his word. And this is an especially good time of year to be able to see what I'm talking about. Because you see, all all it takes is a trip to the local store. And you walk into the store and all around you are these ghoul, demon, costume, all kinds of stuff. Celebrating this holiday on October 31. You know, I walk through the store and it's disgusting. It's disgusting to see how far away we really are from God and His Word. Have you trained yourself? See, the Bible calls us to train ourselves to be godly. And do we see that our training to be godly, while that's difficult in and of itself, we're called to train ourselves to be godly in the midst of a culture that's ungodly. The culture's not going to help you be godly. We're called to train ourselves in godliness. And so all the more reason in the midst of this ungodly culture we live in, all the more reason to return to biblical truth. Refresh yourself in who God is. Remind yourself of what God's word says. Look at 140. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. And right here we have another great biblical truth. Your word is pure. Some translations say tried or tested or proven. It's very pure. You know, something that's pure. When I get a a, a bottle jar of honey... And it says pure, 100%. Pure. Well, it doesn't get any more pure than that. But the scripture is interesting. He says not just pure. He says very pure. Exceedingly abundant pure. And notice the connection that the psalmist makes here. I love this. He says, your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. He loves God's Words. Why? Why does he love God's words? Because they have the power to save him? Well, yeah, probably that's part of it. Because they'll keep him out of trouble? Yeah, that might be part of it as well. But the text says he loves it because it is very pure. He loves God's word simply because it's pure. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, only those who are pure love God's word because of its purity. Only those who are pure love God's word because of its purity. His heart was was knit to the word because of its glorious holiness and truth. He admired it. He delighted in it. He sought to practice it and longed to come under its purifying power. And I was thinking about this idea in the scripture of purity. And how in 1 John chapter 3, he's writing there in 1 John chapter 3 about the Lord coming back. The Lord returning. And those who have hope of him coming back. And he picks it up in verse 3 of chapter 3 and says, Everyone who has this hope of Christ returning, what's he do? He purifies himself just as he is pure. 
You see, our days are to be spent purifying ourselves as we train ourselves in godliness. And in the midst of an ungodly nation, are you purifying yourself just as he is pure, eagerly awaiting the return of our Lord and Savior? Look at the second challenge in verse 141. He says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Now, the first challenge dealt with ungodliness that was evident all around him. Verse 139. The second challenge is closely connected to this. He describes himself as small, which can have in mind few or young or low in respect to dignity. I believe it has the latter definition here. He seems to view himself of a low status in conjunction with being despised. What does it mean to be despised? If you are despised, that means you are hated. How many of you in here like to be hated? Anybody? Anybody like to be hated? Okay, I didn't think I'd see many hands. That's not fun to be hated. That's how he's feeling. Small, low. No one's respecting him. Remember, what is he endeavoring to do? He's endeavoring to pursue the Lord. He's endeavoring to be pure. He's endeavoring to be godly. And he's feeling small. And he's being despised. The ungodly are doing a fine job, it seems, today, getting their voices heard out there. Pagan philosophies and ideas seem to be okay, but as soon as you put a Christian idea out there, they're bound to cause arrows flying. And and you're bound to be hit with one of those arrows if you're the one putting it out there from a Christian perspective. Low and despised. You know, that might be enough for... Some to just abandon the pursuit of purity and holy living. It might be enough for some to just say, is it really worth all the trouble? And just throw the towel in. I'm done. It's not worth it. I want you to notice the response of the psalmist. How does he handle the challenge? He says, yet I do not forget your precepts. I'm small and I'm despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Amen. That's wonderful news because, you see, he's holding on even in the midst of a very hard situation. And there's lots of men that have forgotten God's truth. They've abandoned altogether his truth when trials press in. You see, challenges that arise over the word, they can strengthen your faith or cause one to fold like the seed sown on the stony path, which it sounds and looks all good for a time, but then when persecution arises because of the word, what happens? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take up the whole armor of God. Go back into your Bible and allow the identity of God and the power of his word to wash over you once again. Listen, friends, these are some words of encouragement. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. We know this as the passage that's making reference to the suffering servant to come. Jesus, 
And in chapter 53, verse 3, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You see, small and despised is not reason to pack it all in. No, no, no. It's a description that bears close resemblance to the Lord Jesus himself. Small and despised. And biblical truth counters worldly thinking. Small and despised is lowly. We can insert lowly and godly. The world would have you be highly favored and popular. Pursue to be popular. If we revert to the biblical truth, friends, what do we see? We see that the Bible speaks of humility and servanthood, being lowly in heart. We see that the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see that the Bible teaches that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Feeling small and despised is normal for someone working through godliness training. You're not an oddball for believing the truth of God's word. Can I just say, maybe that's what some of you needed to hear that this morning. You're not deemed strange. You're not deemed odd for pursuing the truth of God's word. Pursue it with all your might. When you're challenged with hatred all around, don't forsake God's word. Don't set it aside. But draw near. Press in. Don't forget his precepts. There's two more biblical truths here in verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And your law is truth. Remember what we said early on about the the, the big picture of this passage. Biblical truth explains your challenges. And it guides your feelings. And that's what we've seen up to this point. In verse 137, the psalmist declared that the Lord is righteous. And here in 142, he elaborates on his righteousness. And he says it's an everlasting righteousness. God's perfect good and just nature is not a new concept. It's been around forever. Everlasting. His righteousness has no end. It has no beginning. Everlasting is eternal. And in the midst of challenges facing him, it would be a comfort to know that God's righteousness has no limit or scope. An everlasting righteousness speaks of an everlasting God. See, you might feel small and despised, but you serve, friends, the everlasting God. The everlasting God who is righteous, just, and altogether faithful. He has justified you and he's declared you to be righteous in his sight. He's pardoned you. He's removed your sins. He's chosen you to be a treasured child of the Most High God. The proverb writer says that he loves those who follow righteousness. The Lord loves those who follow righteousness. You might remember that verse when you think about quitting. When you think that life's getting too hard. He loves those who follow righteousness. You're operating as an adopted child of the everlasting God. And as a child of His, you can know with certainty that you are in His care. There's great comfort there. 
So the biblical truth we see expanded here in verse 142. (coughs) Your law is truth. Your law is truth. If God's word is true, what are the implications for your living? You can trust what he says. You can trust what he says. See, this word is upright, it's righteous, it's just, it's very faithful, it's pure, and it's full of truth. Walk in it. The psalmist is is holding out biblical truth to grab a hold of, to live by, to defend, to witness to. In fact, we see in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, and he prays, sanctify them, those who are following, sanctify them according to your word. And he says, your word, he defines what the word is. Your word is what? Truth. Jesus said that. We read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, Moses it says, he's, he's repeating, crying out this psalm. It's this wonderful song in Deuteronomy 32. He says, speaking of God, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Moses said that. Jeremiah reminds us that we too live among a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord, nor receive correction. We live among a nation who does not receive correction. He says, truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Jeremiah 7, 28. The world around you keeps operating like Pilate, asking the question, what is truth? What is truth? The world has its own definition of truth. But we say to the law and to the testimony, don't we? Here's our truth. Here's our truth. Jesus prayed that his father would sanctify us by the word of truth. Truth has perished in the world around us, but God's word directs our journey, friends. God's word directs our journey. And we see a third and final challenge in the text. Look at verse 143. And perhaps this is the most difficult of the challenges yet. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. Your commandments are my delights. Now the challenges have gone from what he sees around him, verse 139, right? The wickedness around him, the ungodliness around him to what he's experiencing on the inside as it relates to his position, his lowly state, his being despised as a man pursuing godliness, to finally now being in a position of perhaps physically receiving some of that hatred. Trouble takes the form of affliction. Anguish, according to one commentator, anguish has in mind that which results from being pressed or compressed refers to a situation where there's no room to move, where we're pent up in a narrow place. You ever been in that position where there's no room to move? That's the anguish that the psalmist is writing about. You might be here today listening to this word today and you find yourself in trouble. You're feeling squeezed. Something's happening in your life that that makes you feel like you are up against the wall and there's no way out. Perhaps if you're not there today, maybe there's a time in your life when you were there and you know what the psalmist is speaking to. Look at the psalmist's 
response in the midst of the trouble and anguish. And, and, you know, before we even look at the response, I think some of us, we might, before we look at his response, we might say, but, well, the psalmist is the psalmist and he's going to do, that's what he does. It's, it's the right thing. And I, I don't oftentimes maybe do the right thing or he doesn't know my situation. My situation's a little bit different. Look what he says. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet, yet, your commandments are my delights. Your commandments are my delights. So he's hard-pressed, he's in trouble, he's constrained in what seems a helpless situation. And what's his response? He says, yet, your commandments are my delights. And as I was thinking about that, church, I was reminded of the end of Habakkuk. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And you might, might remember Habakkuk was in a little bit of a bind. After finding out from the Lord what was going to be happening to his nation. They were going to be taken over. They were going to be destroyed. And here at the end, he says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine. Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Or what about that passage back in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Speaking of the Messiah to come. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet, he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed and afflicted. I was thinking about the proverb writer. Proverbs chapter 12, 13. The last part says that the righteous will come through trouble. Proverbs 12, 21 says no grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. And yet the psalmist here says trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Seems to be a contradiction maybe. Well, see, if we understand what the psalmist is saying... The way he feels is that trouble and anguish have truly overtaken him or taken hold of him. His feeling, though, doesn't override his response, and that's delighting in his commandments. Having just identified God's righteousness as everlasting, he now proclaims God's testimonies in that same everlasting light, the beginning of 144. He says, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting I was reminded earlier in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. Your word is eternal. And the righteous will come through trouble. The righteous will come through trouble. And it is true that no grave trouble will overtake the righteous. Listen, a righteous man who follows the Lord wholeheartedly today will experience the same kind of challenges presented in this text. But take heart. You see, because our Lord Jesus went to the cross and he was buried. But the biblical truth tells me that no grave trouble took hold of my Jesus. No grave trouble. He didn't have any grave trouble. Literally, he had no grave trouble. He was there but for a few days. And he was raised. No grave trouble for Jesus. The wicked on that day, they were filled with evil as they always are. Murdering the Messiah. And it seemed that all hope was lost. 
but the Lord, our righteousness, was raised on the third day, just like he said. And if you're in Christ, you need not worry about grave trouble. You see, they might persecute you. They might even speak evil of you. They might hate you. They might even take your life but you aren't going to experience any grave trouble because you've been set free. You've been redeemed because he lives. You're going to live. If you are in Christ, you're going to be raised to newness of life. See, it's because he lives that you can face tomorrow, the hymn writer says. It's because he lives, all fear is now gone. The body, the hymn writer says, the body they may kill, but God's truth, what's it do? It abides It abides even still. His truth abides still. Biblical truth explains these challenges that we face and guides our feelings. And biblical truth does one other thing I want you to see here in this text. It fuels our petitions. Look at the last part of 144. Give me understanding and I shall live. There's one petition here in this stanza. And it comes right here at the end. Give me understanding. I ask, understanding of what? Give me understanding of what? I believe he's petitioning God to understand his righteousness and his righteous word, both of which he's described as everlasting. I believe that biblical truth has served as the catalyst for the psalmist's petition, and it ought to drive our petitions as well. You see, when we encounter challenges and trials of many kinds, that's going to also bring with it certain feelings. And those feelings that we have ought to be guided by the biblical truth. But the challenges and the feelings that we have and we encounter in our life, that in and itself ought to be the fuel that petitions to God. When we find ourselves in a challenging situation and we find ourselves with certain feelings, what do we do with those things? We are called to take them, cast them upon the Lord. Those are the fuel for our petitions. see, as we open the word, as we hear the word, as we study the word and meditate upon this word, out of it will come many petitions to offer up to God. Psalm 119, 125 says, I am your servant. Give me understanding. Why? That I may know your testimonies. That I may know them with the intent to live them out. Biblical truth explains your challenges, guides your feelings and responses, and fuels your petitions as you run God's course through the finish line. In what sense does the psalmist hope to live? That's what he says. Give me understanding and I shall live. In what sense is he hoping to live as he petitions God for understanding? Friends, I believe that the psalmist is asking of God for understanding that he might live as God intends for him to live as a righteous man. A righteous man takes up a righteous word and follows steadfastly after a righteous God. I believe that's the kind of living he's desiring. You want to know how to live, truly live in the midst of an ungodly world? Pray to God for understanding and you too can begin living what we read about in John's gospel, this abundant life that Jesus came to offer. He lived and he died and he he was taking our sins upon himself 
dying the death that we should have died. And through faith, believing in Jesus, God will credit your account. He's going to credit to your account by His free grace with the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And when you understand what God has done, the distance that He traveled, the length that He went to see that you would know Him, you will begin living that spirit-filled, abundant life that's detailed in His Word. Go back to His Word. Go back to His Word. See what His Word has to say. This is the life, friends. This is the life. Give me understanding and I shall live. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me with a cross and gave himself for me. This, my friends, is everlasting truth upon which you can stand. Hold fast to Christ and his word and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for clothing us in your righteousness, being in Christ. Thank you for that wonderful word, the word of hope. Father, having been justified, we now have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access, having been justified, access to your throne. And we have hope of eternal glory. Father, thank you for those wonderful truths. Thank you for what it is to be justified, to know that our sins have been pardoned. But Lord, even more than that, you've accepted us as righteous and you've done so only through the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone. Father, thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you that you are a righteous God. Lord, these biblical truths that have been set forth here this morning, I pray that we would walk in these biblical truths, that we'd be reminded of these biblical truths so that when challenges come our way, Lord, we can always go back. We can always go back and, and, and re, uh, read these pages of Scripture that you've given to us and revealed to us about who you are. We can always go back and we can always stand firm once again upon the truth, the solid truth of your word. Father, there's no challenge that we face. There is no, truly no grave trouble for the righteous. I pray we would remember that, that we would walk in that truth, that our feelings would be channeled to your truth. The challenges would be fueled back to your tr truth. And that, Lord, out of all these challenges that come our way, we would know then, and that would be the fuel for petition, for knowing how to pray and what to pray. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would 
as the psalmist prays at the end here, we would pray for understanding. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding that we might live, that we might live as a righteous man, a righteous woman in the midst of an unrighteous land. Continue to encourage us, Lord, through your good spirit in us to keep training ourselves to be godly, to keep on and to keep holding fast to the word that you've given to us. Looking forward to that day with eager expectation of being with you, of seeing Jesus, of arriving at our heavenly citizenship. Father, we look forward to that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the righteous one. Amen.